Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Over the weekend, I had, uh, last weekend, I had a wonderful experience of reading uh, a book that I only knew existed about a week ago. It's called The Seminarian, Martin Luther King Jr. Comes of Age. And it deals with um, his, really his uh, graduate school experience before he went to earn his doctorate at Boston University. It deals with his uh, seminary experience at Crozier uh, Seminary. And uh, it highlights an area of King's biography that has not, surprisingly, not been given much attention. Uh, the book is by Patrick Parr. He is, uh, <clears throat> his area of nonfiction focuses largely on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He's also written extensively about Japan. In fact, that's where we're talking with him from. And he's done uh, various biographical portraits of historical figures, uh, such as uh, James Baldwin, Kurt Vonnegut, Ralph Ellison, and uh, other uh, literary figures. Uh, but I, I tell you, this book was a great read. And it about every page brought something to light that I was unaware of. And uh, Patrick, it's wonderful to have you with me. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thanks uh, for having me. I appreciate it, and thank you for reading the book. Yeah, I, I loved it. Uh, let, let me say before we begin, a point of etiquette: How should we refer to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during this interview? I, I've been criticized in the past for calling him Martin, as being overly familiar in depriving him of his earned doctorate. I've been criticized for calling him Dr. King for making him sound like an academic and not the popular leader he became. So I'll let you. Uh, set the ground rules, how do we refer to him in our conversation? Well, uh, I think uh, you should have been safe with uh, Dr. King, personally, but uh, he he worked hard to get that doctorate, even right. though there were some things that he did. <laughs> right. But uh, I think uh, when we're talking about him as a seminarian, uh, definitely ML is what I chose in the book, and I think we would be just fine calling him ML. ML, uh, that sounds good. We're referring to, yeah, ML, yes. Okay. Let me start. Uh, you can, you can uh, yeah, uh, hopefully it, it, either one is fine. Okay. Well, let me start with the question that many have raised at this moment in American history, and then we'll circle back to some of the uh, more fundamental questions. How would uh, uh, ML have responded to the death of George Floyd? Oh, well, yeah, jumping right into it. Uh, I think uh, with uh, with George Floyd, I think uh, also uh, you have to also look at Jacob Blake, which mm-hmm. has happened as well. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's not that uh, I'm I'm an author and I can I can imagine how he might respond. I can't really uh, put it into uh, um, an exact reference, but I think I would say. Uh, well, I, I would like to bring up the fact that King actually went to Kenosha, um, Wisconsin, where Jacob Lake was shot, and he's also visited Minneapolis. He was somebody who traveled to these cities, and he had very uh, similar messages that you're hearing today that he spoke 50 years ago in these in these places. Mm-hmm. So. Um, how would he respond? He would he would be talking about bridging the divide. He he was always someone who um, was trying to be in the middle to speak the languages of both sides. And uh, I think uh, a little bit of uh, middle ground is what uh, 
what we really need to hear these days, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a time when it seems like everyone is on one side or the other. Right. So in this case, King would find the language because that's the language that he um, developed when he was in seminary. He would find the language that would uh, um, be able to strike a chord with both um, the people who are having a hard time with Black Lives Matter and people uh, on the opposite side. So um, it's, he would, it's, it's about love and it's about dignity with King, and mm-hmm. it's always been that way. And uh, he would not, uh, he would not, did he ever come to the place of, you know, even towards the end of his life, of endorsing violence uh, in the pursuit of justice? Um, well, um, he, no, he never did. It's, he deplored riots, um, for example. He, for all the time, this is like a direct quote that he said at Kenosha, uh, uh, when he spoke at St. Joseph High School, he says, these are the people who will riot, or the people who are ones who have no stake in society, and the riot is the language of the unheard. Hmm. This is, uh, these are King's words that he spoke uh, in Kenosha, and many times before that. Uh, he, he was always uh, against violence in any shape or form, and that was... Uh, that gave him a hard time on both sides. Uh, some wanted him to be stronger. Some, some were still angry at how uh, radical he became, especially later in his life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You focus in the book on the crucial years at Crozier Seminary after he'd completed his undergraduate degree at Morehouse. Why did he want to go to a northern seminary? I mean, he was from an influential Atlanta family. He was assured a place, you know, in the South. Why did he want to go to a Northern Seminary? Oh, wow. Um, he, many reasons. <laughs> many reasons. Uh, he, he wanted to go to a Crozier first to establish himself as an individual, as a man who could be uh, and could dream uh, away from the large, looming shadow of his father. Uh, that was... Big, the biggest reason why he wanted to go north. Uh, his father had never really been north. It was a way to kind of uh, uh, intellectualize his own growth and allow him to see if he really wanted to do this, if he really wanted to be a preacher like his father. Uh, there were many dreams that he had at uh, Crozer. He wanted to, to be a scholar. He wanted to be a preacher. But he wanted to exercise those options uh, kind of at his own pace. And if he had his father around him and his family that was very well known in the Atlanta area at the time, then he wouldn't have had a chance to um, explore those those feelings. I, I think that was the major reason. Mm-hmm. What kind of preacher was his dad? Well, uh, one way to put it, he, he was a strong preacher. He was a someone who spoke loudly and rumbled almost. And mm-hmm. uh, King, at the, at the beginning, uh, King, sorry, uh, ML, uh, when he was listening to his father preach, ML didn't really like the way he preached, to be honest, uh, <laughs> at first, especially when he was trying to establish himself and his own uh, style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his father had this booming style, and uh, he wanted to more... Uh, 
uh, to bring in some more high-minded uh, philosophy, so to speak, uh, into the pulpit. He he wanted he wanted to speak to the congregation in a more enlightened sense than his father. Not that his father didn't have those moments at times, but that was more King's uh, path. Mm-hmm. Was from did he want from the beginning uh, of his seminary training? Was he intending um, uh, a more integrated audience? You know, uh, was he uh, was he planning on going back to quote the Black Church, uh, Black Baptist, you know, denominations, or did he want to uh, preach to uh, a more integrated audience? He did absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, this <laughs> that was one of his goals, but. I, I don't know if he really knew how to do it until he went to Crozer. Uh, there's a really big moment that happened to him in seminary. He had a, two mentors. One was a professor named uh, Robert Kitten, and he was a white uh, Crozer professor. And uh, also in around the Chester area was this reverend named J. Pius Barber. And both of them... Uh, kind of stood in for the two ways of preaching from a, an integrated standpoint. You had Kitan, who's far more uh, northeastern, and to King, far more stiff in the way he spoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who wanted to, he wanted King to drop his slow southern accent, for example. Uh, but then there was Barber, who emphasized to King, actually, that he needed to learn how to speak to both uh, white and black congregations in order to have any impact on the country. Uh, so Barber really helped bring King kind of into his own um, into his own style. And but Kitan is just as important. He's kind of ignored by scholars because of how uh, highfalutin he was. Mm-hmm. But actually, Kitan's mere presence, his mere rigidity was very important for King to see because that was the kind of person he would be faced with uh, for the rest of his life as he uh, learned how to speak to more integrated uh, congregations. Uh, what kind of student was he at Crozier? Well, hidden miss. <laughs> he, was, uh, he, was a, he was a good student. Uh, he, re- he ended up a great student. Uh, I think at first when he came in, uh, there was a class, for example, called uh, Old Testament, and he was uh, a student with this uh, professor named uh, Pritchard, Dr. Pritchard. And Pritchard was a biblical archaeologist. You could call him like a poor man's uh, Indiana Jones. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And and Pritchard, uh, but he really wanted to shine light on Moses uh, in his uh, Old Testament class, because Pritchard had this kind of stereotype about black students, especially coming from the South. Pritchard believed that they were all fundamentalists, that they believed in Moses as this mythic uh, figure, whereas there was, uh, he wanted the class to, and especially of the black students, um, fairly or unfairly, uh, he wanted them to reassess what it is that they were preaching down in the South. Mm-hmm. So 
that was that was eye opening to Kane very much. Um, did he push time. back against that at all? Uh, you mean did he want to keep the mess, King? Or, or did he? Did he? Yeah, did he want to preserve a sense of historicity in the Old Testament narratives? Yes, yes, uh, but it wasn't a. Richard was a little short-sighted in the way he saw uh, these tendencies by by black students. He probably didn't understand how important it was to uh, spotlight the the myth and its power Mm -hmm. on congregations and how how much hope it gave people. Right. Patrick, I've got... that's something that Richard probably forgot. Very good. No, okay, we have to take a quick break here. We'll come back on the other side and continue. My guest, Patrick Parr, author of a great... Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, uh, Patrick Parr. He is the author of The Seminarian, Martin Luther King Jr. Comes of Age. And our discussion occasioned by, of course, the racial conflict uh, in the United States at this time. Uh, We've seen uh, not only peaceful protests, we've seen violence in the streets and... You know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is the icon, uh, winner of a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, his I Have a Dream speech is part of the American civil canon. Uh, and uh, we started out by just asking uh, how he would respond to uh, the deaths of uh, George Floyd or the shooting of Jacob Blake or and Walter Scott or Laquan McDonald's death. And... Uh, we moved on from there, though, to talk about his education, especially his seminary education. This is an area of King's studies which has been overlooked until Patrick's book, uh, The Seminarian. And so we've been talking about what kind of student uh, was uh, M.L., Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, how he was started out good and ended up great as a student. Uh, how did he relate to his classmates, Patrick? Did he make friends easily? Did he keep friendships? Oh, yes, yes. He was very popular at Crozier. Uh, between both uh, uh, black students and white students, uh, he was elected student body president at Crozier uh, during the end of the second year. Uh, he was the first uh, African-American to be uh, student body president at the time. Uh, and that's a reflection of his popularity there. And... They trusted him. Uh, a lot of the interviews I I, uh, I gave in the book, uh, I think that they show that King was somebody who uh, wanted wanted to reach both sides, and that was something that they admired. And unfortunately, it wasn't throughout the entire seminary there who felt that. But King King was somebody who could reach. Um, to both sides and to find some sort of bridge of communication. And, you know, this is, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that in fact, it, as history has moved on, uh, that is actually what he's uh, renowned for. I mean, he's become an iconic figure uh, among whites uh, and blacks and even internationally. Um, so, I mean, it's somewhat reassuring, uh, to me anyways, that his efforts to serve that bridge-building role, uh, he actually did succeed at. That's, it seems to me that's not an easy thing, that's not an easy thing to do, uh, especially uh, back in the uh, 1950s and into the 1960s. There was a, we're talking about his relationships there, I, I came across this, uh, one of my producers brought in this uh, notice uh, 
after he had been um, stabbed, he got a letter from Japan, in fact, uh, uh, Makoto uh, Sakurabayashi, I think is the name, probably butchered the pronunciation. But he, oh, yes. yeah, he'd yes. been a divinity student with King at Crozier. And, uh, you know, he went back to Japan, but when he heard about King being stabbed, uh, he wrote him a note. And I thought, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, again, an indication that King had some kind of, made some kind of impact on this uh, Japanese student. Um, Were they close, do you know? Uh, Oh, uh, yes. Yes, they were very close. Makoto Sakurabayashi, yes, he uh, wrote, uh, after King was stabbed, uh, in a Blumstein's uh, department store, uh, signing books, uh, he received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. Uh, it's overwhelming when you go to the archives and you, and you see uh, how many people, and all, just all of the personalities who contacted King at that time, uh, it's it's overwhelming. You had John Steinbeck, uh, the wow. author. Yeah, uh, he he wrote in. Yeah, there are just so there. Uh, Nixon. There there were so many people who really admired King and what he was trying to do, especially down south. It, that was almost a, at that time. 1958 was a it was a difficult year, obviously, because he was he was nearly killed. That right. that uh, letter opener was an eighth of an inch away from death. Wow. For him, so he he was very close to um, not giving the country ten more years, which would have been very costly. Right. Um, Who, so, what was the what was the motive for yeah, that? Well, uh, I mean, this was a black woman, right? Who uh, sure. Him. Yeah. What was the motive? Yeah, this was Isola Curry. Yes. Yeah. Her name was Isola Curry, and uh, she uh, had. There's not really the a genuine motive uh, that was ever really found about that, but she had a, a, some paranoia, and she she believed that King had been sent, in a way, and these, uh, she had these conspiratorial uh, ideas about what King was trying to do up there. So she, um, she ended up living a long life, actually, though. She passed away when she was, uh, I think, 98 years old uh, in a nursing home. <laughs> and she, yeah, she was in an, she was institutionalized, uh, and but uh, something that's pretty interesting about that time that has also been ignored is that Curry, uh, after she did that, there were people from the South who actually sent money uh, to her lawyers to help fund her case against King. So because they, the people down South, uh, of course, all white, uh, they were. Um, they wanted. They were almost glad that Curry had tried to do something like that. That shows the potency of anger wow. that was occurring, especially down south, and yeah. what King had started there. So, the way the story is told about uh, his career, he becomes a civil rights leader. When, as a new preacher in Montgomery, Alabama, he's asked to front the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, from from reading your book, The Seminarian, it seems clear he was already committed to some kind of civil rights mission while still uh, in seminary, and even before he went for his doctorate, um, and well before this first pastorate. Tell us a little bit about the evolution 
of his civil rights emphasis. Was his dad interested in civil rights? I know that that wasn't the primary point of his preaching, but was this uh, kind of a, a change in law, um, you know, the, the, the breaking down of Jim Crow laws? Was this part of his dad's preaching that he picked up on, or is this something that he developed later on his own? Oh, no. Uh, the, he was very much uh, uh, influenced by his father's behavior, and his father was also uh, very big into civil rights. Uh, yeah, it's important to note that uh, at that time, it's not really, a, it wasn't about civil rights. It wasn't something to pick up. Uh, Daddy King, uh, who his nickname is by, uh, Daddy King was uh, simply trying to for example, go to an elevator at a department store that was uh, segregated, and he went down with a bunch of uh, parishioners, and he said, I want to take this elevator. Why can't I take this elevator? What's wrong with this? And um, those kinds of bold moves, uh, which uh, were uh, extremely controversial at the time, uh, a young Martin Luther King saw that, uh, and he saw that kind of activity time and time again. Uh, Any time that they had to leave their very small, segregated bubble of a street, Auburn Avenue, uh, they had to face these challenges that were, well, of course, were, when you look at it now, it were extremely embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's still, uh, even though we know the history, it's still hard to imagine it was tolerated. Um, right. When he um, when he went to his first pastorate there in Montgomery, uh, what was he? Th- how was he thinking about his role as a pastor? Did he see it as preacher, teacher, counselor, reformer? What was foremost in his mind? Oh well, um, yeah. Yeah, he, he's a young man, and he had about a full year of preaching without having to think about leading that uh, that boycott. And uh, they loved him. They loved him at that time. A lot of his sermons, I remember one man uh, in particular, uh, uh, just said they were always about love. They were always about loving people and uh, not so much about integration or segregation and things like that, but sort of uh, appreciating um appreciating yourself and uh, the others around you. And I I think he started as somebody who was just trying to gain the trust of the congregation, mm-hmm. because Dexter at the time, Dexter Baptist Church, where he preached, Dexter was uh, a very highly educated congregation, that's the best way I can put it. And they didn't mind when King went into um, philosophical uh, tangents or brought up some of the things that he had learned in seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why he he really thought he had found his place at Dexter. He, the, the congregation loved him, and he could be himself at that time. Yeah, yeah. That was very different than uh, in, at Ebenezer, for example, which was uh, his father's congregation in church. So... That that was a different style, and whereas in Dexter and Al- in Montgomery, Alabama, King could be a bit more uh, experimental, philosophical, and uh, uh, abstract, mm. I guess you could call it. Okay. But still, always about love. 
And uh, so that kind of more philosophical preaching was regarded with some degree of suspicion at Ebenezer Baptist? Well, it's, it wasn't that, uh, there was a, a phrase called, make it plain. Okay. Make it plain, son. Uh, so if, uh, if uh, let's say that uh, you were in the uh, congregation at Ebenezer, and you're listening to a young Martin Luther King preach, and he's uh, talking about Euripides, and he's talking about all of these uh, ancient philosophers and how uh, they still are relevant today. And it's it's interesting that there are people in the congregation who might, all right, now make it plain, make it plain, gotcha. and, or yeah. <laughs> King would say, get to, it, it'd be be more direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, it's just that, uh, it's just style, really, between the two congregations, I would say. How would he respond? I mean, again, this is one of those <laughs> large and lumpy questions. But how would he respond to people today who claim that America has made no serious progress on black civil rights or ending discrimination or ensuring equality under the law? How would he respond to those who mm. regard the American experiment at this point in our history with such cynicism? Well, um, I don't think he, I, I think he would say that we have still not made enough progress uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have made progress, uh, I, I believe. But at, you know, he would in no way be satisfied with, uh, um, like, like you had uh, asked me earlier, with George Floyd, with Jacob Blake. These are um, serious moments that he would, um, it would be heartbreaking for him to see these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was one, there was one quote that he also, uh, mentioned in, at Kenosha and on Portland as well. He visited Portland too, which is having trouble at the moment. Um, he, he said that he is certain that segregation has ended, but he's, he will never be sure of when the burial is. Ah, interesting. Uh, in, in that in that way he i think he would say that in perhaps a an emotional and spiritual way we are still segregated from each other mm-hmm. and that that is something that is uh would worry him today and it worries uh, a lot of people who still um believe in the cause patrick thank you so much uh for being with us thanks for the book too it's a great uh, contribution And I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Patrick Parr, the seminarian, Martin Luther King Jr. comes of age.